If we've not met, my name is Ben. I'm the campus minister with RUF. And as Kayla said before, RUF is one of the ministries on campus. We exist uh, to love and serve the College of William and Mary. And one of the ways we do that is through looking at um, the Bible together. Um, so if it's your first time here, we're glad that you're here. It was about um, nine years ago, right about this time of year, I was a brand new campus minister. I had just moved here from St. Louis, and I got a random phone call uh, one night, and it was this guy named Scott uh, who said he was a William & Mary alum and that he had heard that RUF was happening here, and he just wanted to hear how it was going and tell me that he was glad that we were here and that he wanted to be a part of it and praying for it. And so he uh, was working through grad school, was actually about to get ready to go to Uganda at that point to both work with a missions agency there as well as connected to his field of public health. Um, and he's been connected to and part of RUF since then. He graduated from William & Mary. Uh, as I said, he's an alum. Went on, got his Ph.D. at Chapel Hill in public health. The fellows um, did his fellows training uh, at Cornell. Ever heard of it? Um, and uh, then came here, but he's sadly leaving us. His bio is already on the Washington uh, website, and I saw that today. I was like, oh, man, already claiming Scott Ickes. But we were talking earlier this semester. He's been a great friend, and you've been this year, fifth year at the, at the college as a professor. And I've uh, been very involved. Many of you know them, uh, the Ickeses. They've had people in their homes and been very involved with RUF. Um, but Scott was saying, yeah, I'm headed out, and actually I've always kind of wanted to speak at RUF. Um, on perfectionism, and I said, yes, please. Um, so here he is. Scott, thank you for being here. He's a dear friend and a wonderful teacher, and if you had him as a professor, you're very fortunate. Um, and we're very fortunate to have you here, Scott, so thanks for being here. Thank you for being a friend of our year. or something, thanks, thanks for coming out. Uh, as Ben said, I am a faculty member at the college. Uh, I did want to put a caveat out that I'm not using my position of authority, yeah, right, at William & Mary to somehow coerce you to become a Christian, but I am speaking to you uh, as a Christian, as a member of our community, about something that I've worked through in my life, uh, and I want to, to help you understand a little bit about how Christianity views uh, perfectionism. And, and what hope there might be in Christianity for those of us, myself included, who struggle with this issue. Uh, and working at William & Mary, when I look out at, at my students, I see myself in many ways. As Ben mentioned, 11 years ago, I began undergraduate work here in 2000. And one of the reasons that I came back to work at the college was because I had such a good experience here. And, uh, but it was a hard experience as well, and there was a lot of things that I learned specifically about this issue um, that, that were part of my faith process as an as a undergraduate student. So um, why don't I pray, and then we'll read two passages of Scripture and begin. Lord, thank you for this night, and thank you that uh, organizations like RUF exist, that we can do something different on a Tuesday night when we have a swirl of midterms and all the academic stress around us, that we can take some time to think about our lives and to worship. Help us to learn tonight from your word. Amen. Okay, we have two passages from two texts that might be a little confusing. Hopefully they're familiar to some of you, but that's okay if they're not, and they're short. The first passage is from Philippians. This is a letter by Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will, be per will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And then from the Gospel of Matthew... 
chapter 5. This comes after Jesus is talking about his famous Sermon on the Mount about blessed are those who do so and so. He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to talk about loving our enemies. And then he concludes the sermon by saying, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's word. Okay, so um, it is really a pleasure to be here, and I'm so delighted to see that um, RUF is here, loving this campus, loving one another, and really thinking about how Christianity affects the way we live our relationships. So tonight's talk is um, about perfectionism, and I think it has a lot to do with how we live uh, our relationships out. And I think it has a lot to say about particularly William and Mary and the kind of campus that we are and the kind of students that we tend to attract. I want to acknowledge two sources for tonight's talk. Uh, Richard Winter's paper, Perfectionism, The Road to Heaven or Hell, and Tim Keller's Twitter account. And I recommend both here. <laughs> in no particular order. Um, so, this far at RUF, you've been talking about uh, minor prophets in the Old Testament. You've been looking at somewhat obscure and understudied passages of the Bible to learn profound truths. Uh, tonight, we're looking at two New Testament passages that are dealing with the issue of perfectionism. And they're dealing both with the concept of the law of God and our, our requirement to fulfill that law. And then they're looking at the promise that we have as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that somehow we will be perfected, made like God. Um, these are kind of confusing topics. This is, um, this is perhaps uh, ludicrous to, to think about and to listen. So as we read these words, familiar to many of us, I'm sure, I want to point out that our understanding or misunderstanding of God's words, the Bible, has incredible power over how we live our day-to-day lives. It really does. Our theology, the sets of theories and beliefs that we have about religious systems, about God, if we have them at all, affects, uh, it shapes our daily life, whether we're aware of it or not. It shapes the way that we live. If you're at William & Mary or living in Williamsburg and attending tonight, chances are that you or someone you know battles with perfectionism, whether you could be diagnosed as a perfectionist in the psychology or in the counseling center, or whether you just have perfectionistic, obsessional tendencies, chances are you have related to somebody or you yourself struggle with some of these issues. Um, So, if you're a Christian here tonight, um, maybe you've been taught, you know, as a Christian, I was taught that being a follower of Christ, my life would be, would be good, and I'm supposed to be holy, I'm supposed to strive to be like Jesus. Um, and, and if you're not a Christian, maybe you've been, um, maybe you've been upset that, that Christians somehow seem to be people who've got it together, and you're really annoyed by the hypocrisy, the, the belief that Christians could somehow have it right and, and have it together. Um, so I, I believe that both Christians and non-Christians can sort of be opposed to this idea of perfection for different reasons, and there could be misunderstandings where, where there perhaps don't need to be. So I want to um, understand a few things about perfectionism in this, in this talk. I want to look at three things, perfectionism and its pervasiveness, or the prevalence of perfectionism, since I'm an epidemiologist. 
Next, we'll look at how it affects us, or the physiology of perfectionism, since I'm a kinesiologist. And then, finally, the path of hope. The path of hope away from perfectionism to hope in Christ, and how an imperfect life can be made whole through life in Jesus. So the prevalence, the problem, and the path of hope. So let's define what perfectionism is. Many of us here strive for excellence and hold ourselves to high standards. That's why we're here. That's how you got into William & Mary. Uh, But perfectionism goes beyond getting good grades and doing well academically and athletically. It's it's the tendency to set standards that are so high for ourselves that we we almost kill ourselves uh, meeting them. They're either impossible to meet, they're goals that we can't obtain, or we meet them with such great difficulty that we we kill ourselves in the process or we affect the lives around us. Um, Either consciously or immediately or eventually, uh, this obsessional tendency to do well to set, to achieve these high standards, breaks us down and starts to eat away at us. Um, so, how do we see, see and, and hear about the, the culture of perfectionism at William & Mary? What are some things that we, that we see and recognize as, as perfectionistic? Uh, we know, uh, I think it's pretty obvious that we have mental health problems at William & Mary. Um, and, and it's just sort of funny to hear some of the ways that we, that we talk about this. And some of these co- quotes actually come back from when I was a student. Um, We kind of admire perfectionism in a way, but we also despise it, right? So, he's got perfect grades, and I hate him because I don't. (laughs) God, I hate her. She always wakes up at 8 a.m. every morning for our 8 a.m. class, and she's in perfectly pressed pants with her hair pulled back and all done, and she's sitting in the first row. The rest of us barely just woke up to make it here for this boring class. Um, We we really, uh, we admire, but we're really jealous about these people that seem to have it. And this problem is, of course, intensified by social media, and this has changed a lot since the years when I was in college. The Facebook effect. We look at pictures of people at their best. They look so happy, that family with their gorgeous kids, three kids, they're all perfectly neat, dressed perfectly and smiling. Don't they ever spill food food when they eat? Why are my kids such a mess? I should really have it more together. I hate myself. Do you hear the script of perfectionistic thinking? This sounds extreme, but these are actually lies that we can start to tell us. It sounds extreme, but these are things that we can actually say that really start to beat us down. Maybe you don't think about your three uh, perfectly dressed or not perfectly dressed kids, but you have your own issue, perhaps. My own life story at William & Mary comes, uh, is quite personal to, um, to my struggle with perfectionism, and it comes from even before I came to William & Mary. When I was here on a recruiting weekend for the track team, I stayed with a guy that became my best friend. He was actually in my wedding. We lived together for... Uh, many years in college and, and even after college and graduate school and he truly was he was a great friend and he is a great friend and we still are in touch to this day but our friendship had a problem uh, he was a Christian he was a teammate and we were true soulmates we really really had this sort of deep and special friendship but I struggled not to compare myself to him he was one year ahead of me in school and his grades were a little bit higher his his running performance was a little bit better he was a more mature Christian in my mind. He was, he was a little ahead of me. His name, his name was Golden Boy. His name from high school was Golden Boy. I mean, how could you not be jealous of this person? And he was one of my closest friends. Um, he never held his success in front of me. He was never intending to make me feel beat down by his 4.0 average at William & Mary, his admission to one of the country's best medical schools, his near all-American running performance despite being injured all the time. But I compared myself to him, and I held him up as a standard. I compared myself to him relentlessly. Despite the fact that our friendship lasted for many years, it ended, uh, or at least our time living together, 
in Chapel Hill kind of ended in a sad way. In our last night as roommates before he got married, he got married a few years before I did, another thing to be jealous about. Um, I actually broke down in tears because I cried knowing that this night had to come. You know, that we could not be roommates anymore based on the structure that I had set up for comparing myself to this man. You know, I was so sad to lose a friend to his wife and the fact that we couldn't be roommates anymore, but I knew that I was living under the tyranny of comparing myself to him. My my perfectionistic tendency was defeating me, and I needed, I needed a break. I needed a new way. Now, thankfully, our friendship has recovered, and we've kind of come out of this. Um, he probably doesn't even know very much about the struggle, but, but I had to work through that, and I'm still working through it. So why is perfectionism a problem? At its core, perfectionism is often rooted in a deep insecurity, and it's rooted in our need for control. We, we believe, we have a misunderstanding that we can control the world around us. We're told that we are successful, but we flail while treading water to stay that way. And it's at the core of academic culture. Academic culture is deeply insecure. Whether you're a student or a faculty member, it's a deeply insecure environment. Uh, And it's true in many achievement-oriented professions. Our society does not make it easy for us to avoid perfectionism. Millions of dollars are spent in our advertising industry. We have airbrushed, uh, and it's mostly around physical beauty, right? We have airbrushed, photoshopped images of models, pictures of happy people all the time, making us feel inadequate, imperfect, and, and yet we strive to be so. We define ourselves, perfectionists define ourselves not by our achievements, but by our failures. So we can have a 3.8 GPA, and we're wondering why it's not a 4.0. We can get all A's and one B, and we're worried about that B. And in some cases, that's because of how we were, how we were raised. The, the households that we grew up in, It wasn't about all the things that we were doing well, but it was nitpicking the things that we weren't doing well. And so the the track in our head was trying to be better, trying to fix those imperfections, just doing it. Why can't we get it all right? Um, So we define ourselves by our achievements, not by our achievements, but by our failures. And it's rooted in in childhood, unfortunately, in many cases. And, And as Christians, unfortunately, our Christian culture isn't too far off for how the world views success. We don't. We're supposed to be people who do things differently, but we're really not in many cases. We, we're the same achievement-oriented crowd that everybody else is in, the world, in large part. So perfection is, as, as its core, at its core is a form of idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is a form of false worship, and it's rooted in pride. Idolatry says that we as humans, um, we, we make something that's a good thing, Something like good grades, something like success, something like physical beauty or athletic prowess, something like having a good family. And we make it an ultimate thing. We place it higher than God. We turn this good thing into an ultimate thing and we start to worship it. It may sound extreme, but what does the word worship mean? It means that something that we hold such value for actually shapes who we are and shapes the value that we place on ourselves. And that's what, that's what idolatry does. We can worship academic success so much that it starts to shape us. We can worship our physical bodies so much that our physical body becomes the thing that drives our daily lives. And that's at the core of some eating disorders and, and, and obsessive tendencies with exercise, um, which as an athlete, I, I've been around and, and have struggled with myself. So perfectionism places us and our achievements at the center of the universe. It's a, it's a form of self-worship instead of God-worship. And the problem is that we cannot set realistic standards. So we use these moving targets and often other people is yardsticks for our success. And you can see how that's a never, that's a no-win situation, right? Unfortunately, this does not go away after college, and in some ways it gets worse after college. 
And I think this relates to the binge culture that we see on college campuses. Success in one area, like grades, leads us to binge in other areas, like excessive drinking or sleeping, justified addictions, Netflix uh, marathons, and so forth. Perfectionism's close cousin <clears throat> is people-pleasing, the fear of idolatry of people, the, 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 the being driven by the, sense that we, uh, by the need to have people's approval. As perfectionists, and it, and it re relates to control, it's this obsessional belief that we can control the world, uh, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can win the approval of everyone, and uh, of all people at all times. And if we don't, and when we don't, our sense of wholeness plummets, and, and our identity rises and falls on, on people's opinions of ourselves. <clears throat> can you imagine being a, pre a presidential candidate and being a perfectionist when only 30% of people at any point in time like you? <clears throat> um, so we think that we can actually control their reactions to us, but we know, we know that God loves us and accepts us, but you know what, that really doesn't matter. Because when we worship other people, we don't care about if God loves us. We feel accepted by Him, but that's not the thing that's really driving our lives. That's not the thing that we're orienting our lives around. What we're truly orienting our lives around are people's um, people's. Uh, opinions of us. We may even attend church or Christians organizations like RUF for reasons other than to grow as a Christian and to love this campus and to worship God. We might be here, as I'm often motivated to be, because I want other people to see me here. I want them to know that I'm a good Christian. I'm here. I'm, I'm supporting this organization. Um, uh, we want people's approval. We see this in the fall, uh, in the story of creation and where Adam and Eve disobey God in our fall, and, and fall, and Eve was cursed. It says, your, your desire shall be for your husband. Sometimes we read this passage and we think about sexual desire, but it's actually talking about her need for her approval from her husband, that Eve will be ruled by her desire to please her husband, and she'll be ruled by that more than her desire for God. She'll have to battle that through her life. In spiritual terms, perfectionism clearly robs us of a full life. But in practical terms, it actually works against the very things that we're trying to achieve, and it actually robs us of, of our ability to contribute to God's, um, to God's family and to this world. So there are at least three destructive outcomes that I could see from perfectionism, true for most of us, but especially true in college culture. Uh, the first is self-defeat. Uh, perfectionists are often prone to giving up uh, or going easy. If I can't be the best, I'll just give up. We settle for the less. We settle for less than our best, and we 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 fail to take risks. When I was a postdoc at Cornell, I was working with my mentor, who is a Christian. She's one of the leading international nutrition specialists in the world, uh, and and she's truly she's truly an exceptional person to work with. She had an ability to talk to you as though you know the counselor in Goodwill Hunting. Remember that scene? She could really like sink in on what your core issue was, and she could like search your brain and, and figure you out. It was unfair. She had an unfair advantage. She was too smart. But she was asking me before I came to William & Mary, what will your next project be? And I continued to think of ideas, but I couldn't come up with anything because I, I was afraid it wasn't going to be original enough. I was afraid she was going to shoot it down. I was afraid that I didn't have the resources to really make it work. So I eventually folded and I said, look, maybe research isn't my bag. I guess I'm not cut out to be a R1 principal investigator, you know? Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. I'm going to have to figure it out when I get there. Uh, so she invested time in me, and patiently as my mentor, she said, Scott, I don't think that's what God wants for your life. Research may not be your top priority, and that's fine. That's fine. It doesn't have to be. But I don't think God wants you to waste your gifts and to be unchallenged. My fear of shoddy work paralyzed me from taking a risk, from trying to use the voice that God has given me to use to bless the world with the skills he's given me and the education he's given me 
I was paralyzed to, to, to want to do nothing. Perfectionism also invites us to the tyranny of shoulds and, and oughts. Uh, and this comes back to childhood. My friends get all A's, so should I. She didn't gain weight after she went through puberty. I shouldn't have either. Um, this person went to the same grad school and has published 20 papers this year. Why can't I? We live under this, this tyranny of I should do this because other people are doing it. The second way that perfectionism can rob us of joy is that we, are, we self-deceive ourselves, self-deception. I can illusion myself into thinking that I'm perfect if I get good grades, maintain perfect social standing, and look happy all the time. And again, going back to social media, we can actually achieve this on one level. Sociologists call this the Goldilocks effect. <clears throat> I'll let you close to me, but not too close. But not too distant either, because I want you to be my friend. I want to be popular on Facebook, and I need friends just this close. You see me when I'm happy. You see me in my occasional struggle, because I want you to see how good I am at getting out of problems. But I'm not going to let you into the real heart issues of my life. Do you see how that works? We kind of keep people at a distance, but we're not engaging in true relationships. I do this when I practice hospitality. Um, you're not there yet. Maybe you have people in your dorm room and so forth. But we have a house and we have people over and I'll clean in a frenzy to portray an image of togetherness for our guests, right? And seeking to preserve my identity as an altogether guy, totally organized, yet relaxed and cool, happy that you're here, um, <laughs> spontaneous and fun, there's, there's un insecurity driving underneath me. I want you to believe that I'm, I'm perfect, that I have it all together. The third way that perfectionism eats at us is self-loathing. Ultimately, Perfectionism is a type of sinfulness because we create a set of rules that we attempt to follow to earn a feeling of self-approval and righteousness, but we can never get there. When we meet these goals, which we hardly ever do, we feel great for a while, but when we don't meet them, we feel miserable. And so we retreat into subcultures of angry people, frustrated at people, at Christians oftentimes, especially Christians perhaps, who have it all together. Those uptight perfect Christians have got it all wrong. Really, I've got it right. God forgives us. I'm done with trying to be perfect. Forget them. I'm doing my own thing. We start to hate ourselves. We start to hate the people that we actually should be friends with. And we think, we think we're not trying anymore. We think we've sort of given up on it. But we really are miserable. We're angry. So, uh, and the fourth way um, that uh, I said there are three ways. There are actually four ways. That, that perfectionism hurts us. Um, always stealing extra time, those stupid professors. Um, <laughs> is uh, the fear of failure. We, we preserve ourselves uh, with, well, because of fear of failure. And this really strikes home for college campuses. William Dershowitz is a former Yale professor and twice an Ivy League graduate. He taught at Yale for 10 years and then he left. And he just published a book after he left called The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life. Excuse me. It's called Excellent Sheep. The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life. And it describes today's college student. In a culture of great inflation and fear of rejection and criticism, we actually breed out our ability to handle imperfection and failures in ourselves. We build incredible achievers, but ones who lack resilience to deal with failures and setbacks. We actually drive out, we're, we're educating out curiosity and risk-taking. We're producing people who are very good at doing specific things, and you all are creative people, you can do it, but the education system isn't stimulating that in you. It's not drawing that out in you. And there's a lot of reasons for that. This comes from his book. A young woman from another school wrote to me about this, about her boyfriend at Yale. Before he started college, he spent most of his time reading and writing short stories. Three years later, he's painfully insecure, worrying about things my public educated friends don't give a second thought to, like the stigma of eating lunch alone or whether he's networking enough. 
No one but me knows he fakes well being well-read by thumbing through the first and last chapters of any book he hears about and obsessively devouring reviews in lieu of the real thing. He does, he does this not because he's not curious, but because there's a bigger social reward for being able to talk about books than for actually reading them. I taught many wonderful people, this is Dersowitz, not me, many young people during my years in the Ivy League, bright, thoughtful, creative kids, whom it was a pleasure to talk with and learn from. But most of them seemed content to color within the lines that their education had marked out for them. Very few people were passionate about ideas. Very few saw college as part of a larger project of intellectual discovery. Look beneath the facade of the seamless, well-adjusted kid, and you'll often find are toxic levels of fear, anxiety, and depression, and emptiness and aimlessness and isolation. This is harsh, but I think it, it's, it's telling us something about American college campuses, and, and William and Mary in particular. A large scale of uh, college freshmen recently found 20 that self-reports of emotional well-being have, being have fallen to their lowest level in the study's 25-year history. Return on investment, the phrase that you often hear today uh, when people talk about college, no one seems to ask what the return is supposed to be. It's just about earning more money? Is the only purpose of an education to enable you to get a job? What, in short, is college for? And he goes on to talk about risk-taking and how we've lost our ability to really... Um, train people to treat the undergraduate years as a time to explore, to deal with ambiguity, to wrestle with hard questions, to not have the answer, to take a hard class and to fail. Uh, but our system, our economy, the system that you're in and that I'm in, doesn't reward us for that. Um, we lose our ability to search, to discover, to take risks and to fail. Beyond the effects on the individual, perfectionism affects our communities. It isolates us from true relationships. True community is based on mutual openness and vulnerability. Hiding behind a guise of perfectionism alienates us from other people. Modeling excellence in church and campus, on a team, in school, and family life is good. Projecting perfection, though, however, creates walls. We don't want to be around those people. Perfectionists often can't handle ambiguity, yet much of, much of life, of course, calls us to deal with polarities and uncertainties. Perfectionists want clear equations to the right way. As a result, the perfectionist will, be, will feel total re, totally responsible or would shirk all responsibility completely. If I don't do this, who else will? So, does anybody hear themselves saying that? I, they need me in all those clubs. They need me in all those organizations. Who else is going to lead the students to save the American chestnut? So we overcommit. We overcommit. Perfectionists also exact or demand perfection from other people when we fail to meet those standards ourselves. This is sometimes hidden in the single years, but if you get married, you'll see it eventually if you deal with these things like I do. Perfect Perfectionists live in perpetual guilt and try to save themselves by fault-finding in others, which, of course, Jesus teaches against. Take the speck out of your own eye. Take the log out of your own eye before you notice the speck in your brother's. Others may see uh, perfectionistic tendencies as the reason for their success. As one academic said, if I didn't have perfectionistic tendencies, I'd just be mediocre, I'd just be average, and who wants to be average? My own story um, with perfectionism deals out, uh, comes out of failure. I went through William & Mary with reasonable academic success and graduated and went on to a PhD program at UNC Chapel Hill. Against the Advice I now give my students, I went straight into a, a graduate program that was five years in length. I took on a lot of uh, personal and professional responsibilities, and for the first time in my academic life, um, at the age of 24, I failed. 
And I failed in a class that was really important for my major. It was embarrassing. My professor actually came from William and Mary. It was the class that I needed to do well in, but I got essentially a D. Um, and so I needed to take a leave of absence from graduate school, and it was an embarrassing thing. Uh, but all my faculty agreed that it was time. I was burnt out. I needed to take a break. So I decided to take a risk, and I decided to go to Uganda, where I went um, and taught <clears throat> um, biology and, and did some nutrition work overseas. I had no idea what I was getting into. I knew that I wanted to change. I knew that I needed a break, and I believe that God provided the opportunity for me. So one of the things that the organization that I worked for talked about was that you save your life by losing it. And one of the things that I believe happened to me in that year and a half, which really I've been doing, I've been going back to Uganda ever since 2006, is that when I, when I release control from my life, when the story that I've written about how I need to achieve and what I need to do no longer becomes the story that drives my life, but when I surrender myself to God's bigger story, good things can start happening in my life, and I'm not the one who's measuring the outcomes all the time. So finally, let's conclude by looking at the promise of Jesus to imperfect people, which we all are. How do we do this? How do we free ourselves from perfectionism and where is our hope? We're tempted to say, I need to stop being a perfectionist. I just need to stop being a people pleaser. But do you see how that in, it, in itself is a perfectionistic tendency? We put the responsibility to ending the sin onto ourselves. And perfectionists believe that we can do it because we're achievement-oriented people, but we can't, not for very long. Christianity, nearly every world religion except for Christianity, shares one thing in common, and that's a belief that there is some sort of set of rules or systems or rituals that we need to undergo to cleanse ourselves and to, to prepare ourselves, to perfect ourselves before God. Francis Schaeffer said that Christianity, on the one hand, is the easiest religion in the world, but it's also the hardest. It's the easiest because there's nothing that you need to do, there's nothing that you can bring, but that's why it's also the hardest, because we as people feel as though we want to bring something. We're not used to this idea of free grace. We don't have a, we don't have a currency. There's a system in our lives to, to do something that, to, to receive eternal life for something that we, a, to, a gift unearned. We don't have a metric for that. Um, we need to model perfection to others. Um, we need to do this by, by surrendering ourselves uh, to God and to his plans for our lives. If we invite ourselves, if we invite other people into our brokenness and watch them return the favor, we'll be living in true community. Um, sometimes obedience to God means disappointing other people, ending a relationship that's not good, setting limits for yourself over what you'll give to other people, admitting that you cannot be in two places at once. If your standard is that people will be pleased with you all the time, like mine often is, you'll walk around feeling like an imperfect failure. We need to make God our standard, not other people. Um, <clears throat> faithfulness and obedience, although imperfect, is what God asks for us, not perfection. Perfectionism's ultimate lie is that through our own efforts, we can made, be made right before God. Maturity as Christian lies in being faithful and holy, striving for excellence, but realizing that God is the final judge, not us. We can become paralyzed into thinking that we can do it all, all right all the time, or we can let the one who created us and completed us do that for us, to set us free. In Jesus Christ, God's Son, the God-man, we have an advocate, not an accuser. The enemy, our accuser, tells us that we are imperfect. He is the one who's driving the, the image of this perfect ideal that we can somehow achieve that we know we can't, but that we want to believe. 
Jesus is not our accuser. He's our advocate. He is our champion. He calls us imperfect people to live life yoked to him, to live a life of freedom. Jesus was perfect, so I don't have to be. Perfection bore our imperfection so that we would not perish. Philippians 1.6 says, this is Paul again, For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it on the day of Christ, or he will perfect it on, until the day of Christ Jesus, until God comes again. He doesn't say that we'll be perfect in and during this life. For our entire lives on earth, we'll be in a process of being made more like God. But even Paul, one of the greatest models of faithfulness to Christ, said himself, Not that I have already obtained this, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid for, hold of by Christ Jesus. What Paul's talking about here is not that we're going to be the most successful person, that he's going to be this amazing missionary, that we're going to all of a sudden rise to the tops of our professions, get good grades, get the perfect spouse, the high-paying job. This is not the perfection that Christianity promises. Perfection probably isn't the right word. What perfection is, what the, 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 what the word perfection means here in this context is wholeness in God. And a life lived in wholeness in God doesn't use the metrics of success as the world uses them. We take ourselves out of this rat race of perfectionism and achievement seeking, and we take on a new set of priorities for our lives. <clears throat> the perfectionist says, I will be in control. I can be in control. Popular psychology says, accept your limits. Trust that the world is safe. Trust that the world is good. Just set boundaries. Set boundaries for yourself. You won't have to be perfectionism. Just trust people. Trust people. They are good. But this is, not, this is not what Christianity believes. We might believe some of those things, but Christianity says the world is not safe. The world is dangerous. You are imperfect. You will mess up. But there is a loving God who sees everything. He runs everything. A good king reigns. And he's running everything to the ends of time to a good point, to a good point in time. How he'll get there, we're not in control of. We need to submit to the living God to be free from the bondage of living in our own way and to live in his way. <clears throat> um, as Oswald Chambers said, the expression of Christian character is not good doing, but, good, but God-likeness. Not good doing, but God-likeness. God never promises that we'll be perfect, nor achieve perfection while we live in this mortal life. To want or long for that thing is not outrageous. It's good to want good things, but to actually believe that it's possible is outrageous. So some questions that I want us to ask ourselves in closing about this topic is, what's my attitude towards others that are better than me? In school, in sports, better looking? Did I wish them well and rejoice in their success, or am I bitter and envious that they have what I don't? What would happen to my world, my friends, my teams, my family, my grades, if I set realistic boundaries for myself and if I trusted God with my limitations instead of trying to set them for myself? What would happen to, if I said no, even though I thought it might disappoint some people? When have I imperfectly taken a risk that I felt was an act of obedience to God? And what was the result of taking that risk? To conclude, um, there's a hymn from a Scottish um, hymn writer named James Proctor, and he wrote this in 1990. I wish I could do the Scottish accent. Uh, he said, since I first discovered Jesus to be the end of the law, he wrote this in the preface to his hymn called It Is Finished. He said, since I first discovered Jesus to be the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes, I have more than once met with a poor sinner seeking peace at the foot of Sinai 
where Moses received the law of God, rather than the foot of Calvary, where Jesus died on the cross for us. And I have heard him again and again in bitter disappointment and fear, groaning out, What must I do? I have said to him, Do, do, what can you do? What do you need to do? And his hymn goes like this, some of the verses. Weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing, all was done long, long ago. Till to Jesus' work you cling, by a simple faith, doing is a deadly thing, doing ends in death. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Let's pray. Lord, we are imperfect people, and yet we are people that are committed to doing good things. We want our lives to have meaning. We want our lives to have impact. We want to use the gifts that you've given us to use. We truly do want good things for our friends, for ourselves, for our family. Yet we, um, we often, all too often, create uh, a system where our achievements become the thing that we're living for and not you. Help us uh, to hear these words. Help us to apply them. And help us to be people that can model imperfection and yet obedience uh, to ourselves and to the world. Amen.